Gross, the LA probate expert. And this is our Thursday afternoon probateweekly.com Zoom call. We get together every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern time. And Eastern time is a little more important today because I'm really excited to have on our call today a guest coming from the other side of the country, North Carolina, um, a leading state planning attorney and litigator uh, and uh, probate attorney, uh, the owner and um, I want to say founder, but the owner of the Walls Group. It's got your last name on it, so I imagine uh, founder as well. Uh, Jason Walls, you'll correct me if not, but Jason, welcome to our call today. Hey, thanks so much. I am glad to be with you. So uh, just for the record there, is, are you the founder of the Walls Group? I am. Founded it back in uh, 2009. There you go. So give us a little background. Where are you from originally? I know that you pre- currently practice in North Carolina, but where do you grow up and how did you get into law? Yeah, so I actually am originally from North Carolina. Uh, born and raised. I probably could tell that from uh, my accent, but I uh, grew up in the eastern part of North Carolina, went to school at NC State uh, University, uh, eventually went to law school at Campbell Law School, and um, started the firm in 2009 after working for a large uh, civil-based law firm for a couple of years. And how did you particularly get into probate and estate planning and that, that end of the business? Yeah, you know, uh, to be honest with you, it was kind of an evolutionary process. Um, When I first started my practice, uh, we did what I like to call door law, which means anything that walked through the door, uh, if it was a legal issue, we would try to take those cases on. Uh, (laughs) And uh, looking back, that's probably not the best thing to do from an entrepreneurial standpoint. Um, But as I shared with you kind of on, on a previous call, um, we were doing a lot of different things, litigation, non-litigation, and um, I had a client that uh, we worked with who had a very simple estate plan. Um, they thought that we were like the greatest attorney ever, uh, and I remember that experience. I remember uh, the lady hugging me, the gentleman shaking my hand. These were elderly couple, an elderly couple, uh, and that experience and the feeling that I got. Uh, knowing that we helped these people uh, was very meaningful. And we decided uh, strategically at that point to focus in in the areas of estate planning and probate. So um, seems to me that estate planning is avoiding probate and probate is for people who didn't do proper planning generally. Is that a fair way to describe it? That's a pretty good way of looking at it. <laughs> so what does estate planning look like in your, in your practice? There's, there's different ways to cut that, of course. But what's a most common client. Well, let me back up a little bit. You're in North Carolina. Is, do you practice exclusively in North Carolina or do you cover other states as well? Yeah, so our firm practices exclusively North Carolina. Um, we handle matters from the coast to the mountains. Uh, we are based here in the, um, in the Raleigh-Durham-Chapel Hill market, um, which is right now one of the fastest growing real estate markets in the country. Uh, so the greater Raleigh-Chapel Hill-Durham area. Um, our firm focuses in on estate planning, um, probate work, um, that sometimes bleeds over into a couple of other practice areas, business practices, um, asset protection planning, those types of things. Now, sure, my bias, I'm from Los Angeles, so I didn't know North Carolina had either coast or mountain. So I knew you guys had a lot of college basketball, other than that, I didn't know you did anything else. And tobacco. And we, got a, we got a good hockey team this year, too, if you're uh, watching the, uh, the playoffs. Yeah, the, North Carolina is the center of hockey activity in the United States of America. 
<laughs> yeah. So, um, um, where was I going with all that? So, uh, now, and just again, from the geography point of view, do you also, do you ever get involved in cases where the decedent is in Florida or New York and they have property in North Carolina? Do they do a sub probate or how does that get involved? I'm sure there's some overlap there or you have clients who move, they're your clients, unbeknownst to you, they move to Florida. Next thing you know, they're doing a Florida probate and they got property still in North Carolina. We do. Um, that's actually pretty common. It's what we would consider an ancillary probate. Uh, so it's a situation where perhaps um, you have a decedent uh, who lived in a different jurisdiction. Maybe they owned a beach property or mountain property. Um, and that is perhaps going to require doing a probate in North Carolina. So yeah, we, we collaborate with other attorneys uh, throughout the country on those types of matters. Is the process for that the same and that you have to file the same petitions and get the court letters and the process? It's called subsidiary, but really it's like doing a whole probate in another state, right? Yeah, it really is. Um, and, and I would suggest that that's probably where the estate planning part of this becomes really important. You know, for those individuals who have property in different states, uh, super important to have a really thought out and strategic estate plan put together. So hopefully your family doesn't have to deal with North Carolina or, you know, another state if, if you're no longer living here. Right. And just the, the, the idea of having two different probates, as if probate's not bad enough to avoid, two probates would have to be worse, I think, mathematically. I'm not a legal scholar, but that seems pretty obvious to me. Yeah, you're really adding to the complexity of perhaps a family or a loved one who you've asked to administer your estate uh, because they're dealing not only with the what we call the domicile state, but now they're de dealing with a different jurisdiction as well. So one of the things that got me uh, interested, I'm a real estate agent, and we often look to probate because those properties have to be sold. Uh, but then also I came to discover that estate planning attorneys either occasionally have properties that had to be sold and or deal with people with a bunch of money and a bunch of property. So I found that to be helpful. So let's talk about the estate planning for a little bit. Um, do you work with particular um, vendors or relationships that generate business for you? Do you uh, work, uh, do you market to consumers or is your business mostly word of mouth as far as the estate planning part? Probably a little bit of all of those. Um, certainly, uh, we enjoy working with other professionals, whether perhaps real estate professionals, CPAs, financial advisors, whatever those may be. Um, I, I think that really brings in the right type of clients that we work, like to work with. Yeah. Uh, you know, most of our clients, um, tend to be the type of people that kind of fall into the category as the millionaire next door. Uh, meaning that, you know, they, they most likely have a professional job. Um, they have a home, which, you know, depending upon where you are in the country could be several hundred thousands of dollars. Um, you know, they, they have life insurance, they have investments, they have 401ks, IRAs. Uh, and so all of those items add up to what we call the gross taxable estate. And so for most of our clients, they're probably over a million dollar threshold. Um, most of them are probably somewhere between the one to $10 million uh, threshold there. And just for the record, the gross taxable estate doesn't mean I tax them. That's gross as in the total before deductions. And, and so yeah. I, you know, <laughs> I wish uh, I got my cut of that deal. Uncle Sam uh, there you go. very much wants to know uh, what your value of your assets are, right. especially right. when you pass away. Uh, and if it's over a certain threshold, then certainly Uncle Sam will be happy uh, to tax your estate or, or tax your, your heirs 
um, for whatever is, is owed. Now, where gross taxable comes into effect in California is the fees that are charged are most commonly based on the total value of the assets, not the net. So, for example, an estate may have nothing but one house. It's worth a million dollars. There might be an $800,000 reverse mortgage on it. After selling it with closing costs and such, they may only net $150,000. But the escrow fees are often based on the whole million dollar. Is that how it works in North Carolina as well? Are you flexible with that? How does that work? Yeah, so from really from our standpoint, we're trying to calculate gross taxable estate. We're, we're looking at just the asset value. So we're not necessarily working looking at perhaps uh, creditors or amount that's owed, especially when it's real property. Right, because the, the loan is just another process in it, whether it's free and clear or not, you have the same duties and same responsibilities for that. Yeah. yeah. So when you talk about the millionaire next door, the common person who has a property, they pay it off over time, they have some retirement, they have some investments, um, do they typically come to you, like you say, from an accountant or a, a wealth planner? They realize, hey, we got kids, we have grandkids, we want to do something with it. Um, what's the process look like from they raise their hand and they say they're interested to they actually finish with a full estate plan? What does that process look like as a consumer? Yeah, that's a great question. So we always start the process with what we call a discovery call. Uh, and generally for our firm, that's about a 20 to 30 minute conversation just to kind of understand what the potential client's goals are. You know, what do they want to achieve? Uh, then we talk a little bit about kind of family structure. We talk a little bit about the size of the estate. And it's really an opportunity for them to begin to understand kind of what our process is, uh, but also for us to, to see if they're the right type of client for our firm. Uh, and if the answer to that is yes, uh, then we'll invite them into a, a, a strategic planning session, which is really where we get down in kind of the details, um, understanding kind of what their goals are, understanding kind of what planning solutions may be available to them. Uh, and then it's a process of going into implementation uh, and, and creating that plan. Uh, if it's a client that is looking at some type of trust, um, one of the most important part of the process is making sure that we have asset alignment making sure that, you know, that beach house that's in North Carolina is now titled in the name of the trust or that the assets, you know, the investable assets or the life insurance are all kind of connected with that trust so that we have the alignment of the financial picture and the estate planning piece. Um, now, before going, just for those of you on the call, just for security reasons, because we got so popular with the Zoom bombers, um, we have everybody muted. So you have a couple options you want to participate. We'd love for you to participate. For those of you real estate agents or uh, other professionals looking to improve your business, I would just share with you, the more you participate in life, the more money you make, because you'll learn more and you'll create more value. So you can raise your hand in the Zoom app, or if you're on the Zoom app, put a question. Start with a cue or question and put a question. I'll pass it on. If you're watching live on YouTube or Facebook as well, if you put in the comments, I'll pick those up and ask questions, but love to have you participate, though I'll be honest with you, I could sit and chat with Jason about this stuff for hours because I find it fascinating to learn uh, that in so many different jurisdictions, the principles are the same. So um, um, the one of the biggest challenges I find for people, for consumers who get an estate plan is the equivalent of buying a great safe. You know, they go to the locksmith and pick one out and it's very fireproof it's impossible to open up 
they order it, it's installed, they put it in their closet, they bolt it down, they polish it, they're all happy. They walk out the door. Meanwhile, their, their gold and their valuables and their jewelry are just sitting where they were. They never put the things in the safe. Now, you talked about aligning up the assets. That's the same process, right? You got to take the plan, the property or where the assets are, and put them in the trust or in the plan to be effective. Do you, is that a common problem that you see maybe at other firms? And how do you address that for customers that come to you? Yeah, I wish I could tell you that we never saw that, uh, but sadly we do. Um, I would suggest that there are a lot of people in my profession who really uh, do not do a great job of advising their clients how to align the financial piece and the, the estate planning piece. And if I can use a sports analogy, that's kind of like, uh, you know, playing baseball and you're rounding the bases and you stop at third. Uh, what really gets you over home plate is to make sure that you have the asset alignment. Uh, and then that's something that we, from a philosophical standpoint at our law firm, um, we preach from day one. Uh, we want our clients to know that this is kind of a, kind of a two-step process. Step one is we're going to create kind of that strategic design for the estate plan but step two is kind of what we consider the implementation. And what we mean by that is we are aligning the financial assets because here's what happens if you don't. And then I've seen this way too many times, you know, generally as a child that comes in, um, they have lost perhaps the, the second parent and, you know, they come in for a, a consult with us. They bring kind of this big notebook of what looks like important legal documents. And, and they have this false sense of security you know mom and dad had a trust and you know we start looking through it and generally one of the first questions that we ask is what's in the trust and it's not uh surprising that we get kind of these confused looks from people what, what, what do you mean what's in the trust and you know mom had a trust look here's this cool notebook right um, and it has the name of the property right here in the trust. It says yeah. right here, well, you know, don't forget to deed the property into the trust. It says it right here on the Yeah, it, there's these like three or four page of uh, instructions of what mom and dad needed to do 30 years ago <laughs> to get the assets in the trust and they <laughs> done. Uh, and so what happens then is, as you guys probably know on this call, we've got to go through probate. And we're going to probably utilize a tool called a pour over will after probate to essentially pour those assets over into the trust. And in most cases, that is going to add to the time, to the cost, uh, and also to the complexity of trying to settle someone's estate. So it's just two things for our listeners. One is in California, we have kind of like a fail-safe mechanism called the Hegstad petition. It's a famous court case where the court said, well, it's clear you meant to put in the trust, you didn't based on what I see here the judge will treat as though it's in the trust and move the asset in the trust. And, and, and different jurisdictions have different rules on that. And I think that's a uniquely kind of California thing. Certainly it's a unique California case. I had a case this week that came to me. I'm not an attorney, but I'm a realtor. And the lady came to me uh, that her, her, the property was in the grandma's name. Grandma, uh, she thought I'd put it in the trust. Some bad guy found grandma at the elderly home, got her signed over to be the successor trustee of the trust listed the property guy into escrow, come to find out that mom never put the property in the trust. So, mm -hmm. so the, the daughter, I'm looking at the documents with the woman, I said, well, I'm not an attorney, but let me just tell you what this means. They're calling you to tell you the property is not in the trust. So the bad guy stole the trust, 
but they didn't get the property because the property is not in the trust. So it was, it was the one case of my experience that worked to their benefit. The grandma didn't put the property in the trust, uh, as it turns out. So, but generally, that's not the case. Generally, it works against you. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, so what happens when somebody comes to you? And uh, so you know, planning obviously is great, and you write the words, world's best plan. But what happens to you when somebody comes to you, uh, your firm, and you know, grandma passed, and we have this property, and we have a couple siblings, and we're fighting. You know, obviously, that just sounds up front like it's going to be litigation and costs and such. Where do you people who they need some advice? Uh, you may or may not want to be able to, to take them on as a client. How, how does you you must get those calls? I mean, I know I get those. I'm not even an attorney. I'm not even probate. Uh, I refer them to people here in California. There's different services and such. What happens with those people that you come across, or do you come across them at all? How does that work? Yeah, so it's 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 not uncommon um, where we have situations where potential beneficiaries want to litigate over certain matters. Um, a lot of times, I, I I would suggest that that is probably because of perhaps poor estate planning. Uh, maybe the estate planning did not fully address some of the key issues, or again, we have. Uh, we have a situation where assets are not aligned. Um, in full disclosure, our firm does have a litigation arm to it. Um, so one of our attorneys um, focuses in on estate litigation. Um, it's something that we try to avoid. Uh, we certainly, uh, you know, that, that's kind of the last option to have to go to court. Um, I think we are pretty open in explaining that in most cases, the only parties that kind of come out of a state litigation that wins are probably the attorneys. Um, you know, last week you had Ashley Palmer on the call. Um, Ashley could tell you some more stories that we have gone through uh, from uh, a firm standpoint. We actually have one case right now that's being litigated all the way up to the North Carolina Supreme Court. Um, again, a lot of times that is dealing with um, situations that perhaps could have been avoided if the estate planning process would have maybe gone a little different. Yeah, I have a saying when I talk to customers and I say to them, everybody wants to litigate until they have to write a check. Sure. Then everybody gets a little more reasonable about the whole process. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it, we have cases occasionally in California, I'm sure you do in North Carolina, where there's two parties who both own uh, property. Maybe it was a, a divorce, or half was the first wife, half was half was the second wife, or there's two heirs, you know, two siblings, and they can't agree on what they want to do. One typically, in my experience, one's living there for free, not doing anything. He never launched his life or her life, and they're not paying rent, they're not paying the mortgage, or maybe they are, but they're barely maintaining the property. And the other sibling who wants the use of the asset or wants the money or whatever. And so in California, we have a process uh, called partition action where one party can force the other to sell their interest in the property. Is there a similar process in North Carolina? We do, we have that. Um, and we have dealt with those types of cases where we have what we call tenants in common. Uh, and for whatever reason, they cannot come to a mutual agreement as to the future of that property. And so uh, it, unfortunately, the only recourse is to uh, allow a judge to make that determination. In general, in California, those two partners, 50%, either one can force the other unless there's some other extreme circumstances that generally I know it's hard to generalize, but that generally the case that that you pretty much have to sell the property if you only own 
Yeah, somewhat. Um, you know, let's just say you and I own a property, I'm living there rent free, and you're like, Jason, you know, one or the other has to buy each other out. Um, there is a legal recourse that you would have basically to create a forced sale. Right. Uh, and then we would obviously split the sale proceeds. Got it. Similar process. Okay, good. Uh, Nathan has a question. I see your hand up. Nathan, I just uh, tried to unmute you there. And how can we help? Right. Yeah, I was wondering if, let's say a family comes to you, they have nothing going on. What are, what's the hierarchy of things to do? Do they do a will first and then a trust? And let's say they have a house, their primary residence, and an investment property. So what what's the, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth things they should do? Understand so, you're not giving legal advice here. You're giving your general uh, business. Yes, that's right. Just <laughs> You know, um, and, and I have spoken to many uh, groups uh, throughout the state on this. There are basically five, what I call five must-have legal documents. Um, the first one is probably going to be a will or a trust, uh, depending upon, again, kind of what the assets are, what the person's goals are. You really have to have uh, maybe uh, a will or a trust, or perhaps both, again, depending upon the situation. Uh, a second thing you're going to need to have is a financial power of attorney, commonly referred to as a durable power of attorney. Uh, and the third uh, is going to be a healthcare power of attorney. I think COVID probably was um, an eye opener for most people that you need to make sure you have designated someone that you trust to make healthcare decisions for you if you cannot make those decisions for yourself. Kind of goes, going along with that would be a HIPAA authorization. So who are you designating under HIPAA that has access to your medical records, your information, who literally could talk to your doctors? Uh, and probably that fifth piece would be uh, a living will. Again, I think during the pandemic, we saw how important it is to make sure that end of life care type of decisions are, are clearly made. So those five pieces are what we would describe as kind of the five must have legal documents. Again, depending on a person's age, their state, kind of their family structure, but um, that, that would be the starting point. Well, good. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, I um, always say, I don't know who I stole this, this from, but I, I love the, the comment, which is either you have a plan for how your life is going to be handled, or the state of California has one for you. And the state of California looks a lot like the Department of Vehicles. It's just not that customer service oriented. So uh, you can uh, make those decisions ahead of time. And the health decisions get often overlooked. I had a, a family member who are like married, you know, they lived together for 30, 40 years as husband and wife. And in every respect, we tr but we knew legally they weren't. And when one went to the hospital, all of a sudden the other one realized there were a lot of rights they don't have in the law. And even while politically we can say that they're treated like husband and wife, they're not really legally treated as if, or to get those rights extended can require some legal work. So. Um, Thank you for sharing those five important documents. Chip, I see your hand up and you have a question for us. Let's get you jumping in here. And yes, um, I was, uh, maybe it's just a Florida thing, but um, you had mentioned the five documents. Uh, one of them was financial power of attorney. And I, I thought that on the person's death, the power of attorney lost power because the person's no longer alive. I don't know if 
so maybe I'm confused. No, you're probably correct in that. Uh, power of attorney, the, the authority that you have granted to an individual is going to expire upon your death. Uh, but why I would suggest that's one of the five important documents is really to address incapacitation, disability, incompetence. Um, but yes, once that individual has passed away, that's where we're going to be looking at the trust or the will. Okay. Yeah, big misconception. Hey, Chip, how you doing? I didn't recognize it was you. I just saw the name and the hand up. Nice to see you down in Florida, a part of our probate team down there. Um, that common misconception, people think they're a power of attorney on an account or they're a power of attorney on some asset. But as you said, the power of attorney expires with the decedent um, if it's a standard power of attorney. And so that's not sufficient. So you can have a checking account when somebody's alive. And, and I had a client recently with an elderly aunt and uh, she said, well, I'm on the account I'm at Bank of America. Well, she was as the power of attorney and they got notified when the uh, decedent passed. So this day that happens, boom, that account's frozen. Boom, she has no rights to do anything anymore in this particular case because he didn't have the assets lined up in the trust. And uh, there's a process to get it through the poor of a will and all that, but it was all a whole big thing. So thank you for pointing that out. Um, yeah, if I, if I may, let me just say that the, the understanding the ownership of property and assets is probably one of the most important skills that estate attorneys need to have. You know, I, I have, uh, you know, have many clients that have come into the door uh, and we go through this type of analysis and you know, they'll say, well, you know, I'm not too worried about some of these things because I've got my daughter on my account. Right. So, you know, something happens to me and I'm incapacitated. My daughter's on this account so she can pay my bills. And we really want to get into the details of that because, you know, if, if mom perhaps has created a joint account with daughter, well, mom probably doesn't know now that any of daughter's creditors could potentially go after these accounts. You know, if the daughter got into uh, a legal issue and she was getting sued or perhaps bankruptcy or whatever, mom has now just exposed potentially her assets uh, to daughter's creditors. So that's where really understanding the assets, um, how they're kind of uh, put together, the composition of those, who's on accounts is, is super important. It's never, one thing I've learned, it's never a problem until it's a problem. <laughs> it's never a problem to be on account with your elderly relative until it's a problem. Then it's a problem and you, you're calling the yeah. law. law, and, law and unfortunately, you know, the, the assistant bank manager or, or whomever that uh, is helping to, to put these uh, uh, documents before their, their customer is probably not explaining the legality of what this practically means. You know, mom, unfortunately, is just signing this thinking, great, you know, daughter will be uh, here to protect me if necessary, but um, that's that's rolling the dice, and, and I would recommend that that's probably not the, the best strategy. Yeah, yeah, um, and it, it almost feels like uh, it almost feels like sometimes the banks in on the joke with the attorneys, uh, not not you, but the attorneys who are into it for just for the fees, and that if they had just told, like in, in my family member's case, uh, if they just told them, well, by the way, you know, if you deed this account in the trust that you have already. Then if something happens, you don't have to go through any difficulty. You're the successor and you do whatever you want. But if she passes, the assets are gonna be held and then you're gonna have to do a probate to figure out what happens with them. If they just told her that, she would say, oh, okay, well, we'll move the bank into the trust account and we'll we'll do that instead. But somehow they had some old checks and they thought, why change 
accounts. It wasn't a problem until it became a problem. Uh, Lada, I see your hand up there. We'll unmute you. What's, what, how, could you get your camera on too as well, Lata? Um, how can we help you? Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so the question is, uh, if you have, if uh, parents have a child on the account um, and the parent, one of the parents or one parent passed away, um, and the person is also a beneficiary and a power of attorney, would that be better? So they can have the rights to the entire account? So here's the thing about beneficiary designations. Um, you really have to be careful with those. So in theory, when you have a beneficiary defined asset, let's just say it's a bank account and you, and you use a payable on death beneficiary designation, simple way to transfer those assets to whomever you've identified. Let's assume maybe it's a child. Um, it avoids probate, so that certainly is a good thing. However, uh, in North Carolina, we still have to list that um, when we go through probate. Uh, there's a, a little statute in here that potentially allows those assets to be brought back into the estate if necessary. But the thing that I caution people about concerning beneficiary defined assets, sometimes just naming your kid to receive these things just outright is really not going to be in their best interest. You know, probably the most common example that I, I have is, again, a parent, they're going to name their kids to be the POD beneficiaries of large accounts, but they're also concerned about their daughter's marriage or they're concerned about their son's uh, spending habits. You know, what you've done at that point is perhaps um, just poured more money to them that potentially is not in their best interest. So in those types of cases, there's the, you know, we, we'd want to perhaps consider a trust. And is there a better way of transferring this inheritance in a way that's strategic, in a way that's structured, and just not just an outright distribution to them through a POD beneficiary? Yeah, if they have a bad marriage, all you're doing is, is throwing some gasoline on the fire and financing perhaps more litigation or heartache or problems. I've seen that happen as well. You know, the, the two things that I'm hearing a lot, and, and one of them, again, working with parents who, who have adult age children, the main concerns that I'm hearing nowadays are one, the, the, the situation related to the child's marriage. And the second is a situation dealing with the child's um, mental health or substance abuse issues. Yeah, yeah, it's a common challenge in um, um, to work your whole life and save those assets, and then find out you're really not even not even not getting anything out of it, but you're maybe disempowering your child or disempowering your family members, or or, or hurting your child because the the um, the spouse is empowered. Um, I see this all the time. Um, so that kind of gets my next question, which is I notice, uh, Olad, do you want to continue? Do you have another? You can unmute yourself, I think. Yes, uh, yes, please. So that means um, you can put the accounts into the trust also, right? Properties, of course, and any and all accounts also can be in the trust. So that way, and the accounts are in the trust can have 
beneficiary and i'm glad you explained to that because that's very important uh, because what if the person is gets married who's not married today or get divorced and then the spouse can take the other half or the entire amount so can what i my question is that the account should be in the trust also all the accounts wherever the monies are should be in trust yeah this is really where uh, an attorney really needs to have an asset alignment strategy for their clients. So let's just say hypothetically, I've got a client's husband and wife, and they have joint accounts with rights of survivorship, and maybe they've been married 30, 40 years. Um, you know, they're probably going to want to keep those accounts joint with rights of survivorship. You know, chances are they're they're having maybe their their paycheck, their income direct deposited into those accounts, and maybe they've got some automatic. Uh, withdrawals coming out to pay the mortgage, pay the cable bill, whatever that may be. Well, let's leave that. Let's leave it in place. Um, but we probably would look at maybe identifying a trust as a payable on death beneficiary. And how that practically would work is, again, joint with rights of survivorship. So let's say husband passes away. That account still is the wife's account. And now upon her death, the successor trustee can go into the bank um, go through the process of now transferring whatever was in that account now to the trust. And so this allows us to kind of uh, have our cake and eat it too. We continue to um, enjoy direct deposits, automatic withdrawals, it's again joint, so it's not going to be a probate asset at the first death. And then by adding the trust as the POD beneficiary, uh, we're again exempting probate and having those assets just flow into the trust. So again, asset alignment and um, sitting down, understanding the assets, understanding the strategy, um, and then how we craft that asset alignment strategy is pretty important. Um, Elizabeth Dubuck, I see your name up, uh, your hand up. Let me. Ask oh yes, I was just saying about the um, the marriage. Um, they could put it in a bloodline trust. That's what my grandma did. Okay. So an option is, I've heard the term, is that a common term, Jason, a bloodline trust? I am not familiar with the term bloodline trust. I imagine you could have a trust and you have the rules and the rules could state, they stay within certain bloodlines, whatever, however you define them, male, female, husband, wife, whatever. I imagine you could establish the trust and the money only goes to certain people based on their relationships, right? Yeah, you know, the king of England, I guess the king has to kind of go through the, the male bloodline. I think I don't know the rules, but some, I saw some movie about it. But um, something like that, where I imagine you could leave the trust that it will only be for certain male or female members of a family. Yeah. So how trust works, and, and let's be clear, there's a lot of different types of trust. Uh, the example that I like to use is, you know, when I go onto a Ford dealership. Uh, and I'm looking at different Fords, there's several different Fords that I can pick and choose. Well, the same as it relates to the term trust. There's several different types of trust that I may utilize depending upon what my goals are. But the cool thing with the trust, and, and we use a lot of trust, um, most commonly we use a revocable living trust, which gives our clients a lot of flexibility. It gives them a lot of, and this is almost kind of a dirty word, control over how they want to have their assets ultimately pass to whomever their beneficiaries are. Uh, and because it's revocable throughout their lifetime, we're, you know, give them the opportunity to modify it, to change it. Um, as I tell my clients, 
you know, generally in your lifetime, there are three things that may change. Your family structure, your assets, and perhaps the law. And it's our job uh, to kind of keep you informed of those types of changes and giving you the flexibility to make those changes. And um, it seems to me that, you know, the best uh, made plans over time, uh, if your family structure changes, those plans become um, outdated or, or can even be worse. I, I had a, a case where a client where um, husband, wife, and they're going through divorce and the wife's parents had assets uh, out of state and the husband, while they were married still, managed all this process. In California, he could have been paid as the administrator, but he, he didn't do that. And then as soon as he's done with all the assets, the wife says, well, okay, thank you. I'm gonna take my assets and let's get divorced and I'm gonna go my separate way. And to, so that's already tough enough in family law, but it turns out that the mother before she passed told the husband, not her daughter, by the way, I want you to have the house when I pass, but never updated the trust to reflect that. So even though she said it, generally speaking, doesn't really mean much, but what it does do is fuels the fire of the aggrieved spouse in the family law. And, and so that kind of leads me to my next question is, I noticed that, like you say, your practice areas, you include family law, civil law, guardianships. My, my guess is that you could try to only practice probate and estate law, but you could get dragged into all those areas at some point or another, right? Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, to a limited extent, um, you know, having an understanding of all these other areas of law is important. It's not uncommon that we work with our clients to perhaps create a, uh, a prenuptial agreement um, or other types of family law type of things and, you know, occasionally uh, get drug into some uh, civil type of issues. But, you know, I would say a, a good attorney is kind of like a good doctor. When, when you go in to see your 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 primary care physician, he or she uh, may not be a cardiologist or a urologist or whatever it may be, but they know uh, the spectrum there and they know that perhaps uh, where kind of their lane ends and they may need to refer you to someone else. And I would say the same with, or that should be the same with attorneys also. I would say the same in California with real estate agents, specifically on probate cases that need court confirmation that you just, if you don't know what you're doing there, you're, you're kind of like an attorney who's out of their lane. Uh, that's what I specialize in in particular. Um, Ty, I see your hand up. Let me go ahead and unmute you. And uh, you have a question for Jason. Hi, Jason. So my question is, I'm a, um, I'm a licensed realtor. And I was speaking with a client last year, and I suggested that uh, based on the assets that she had, in addition to her primary residence, she also owned land and several other properties. And I suggested that she may want to consider getting a trust and certainly a will and, and designating a power of attorney. So God forbid, if anything happened to her, uh, you know, those assets at least would be in some type of structure. And she followed my advice. She was able to get those documents prepared. Unfortunately, she recently passed away. And when her family went to take a look at the document, they came to find that she never signed the document. How often do you, you find that to be uh, a re unfortunate reality for some of your clients? And, and in, of course, here in Georgia, uh, as I'm sure with most places, uh, it, those documents are not enforceable because they were never signed. 
Yeah, so um, so actually we're in North Carolina, so just a little bit up I-95 from Georgia. <laughs> right. um, you know, I would say for, for our clients, um, if they've gone through our estate planning side, we, we don't have that situation. Uh, we're going to make sure that they sign their documents. Um, but yes, I think a lot of people, uh, unfortunately, uh, go to an attorney or they go online. I, I've seen that numerous times. They go online, they print out some documents, uh, not understanding exactly what those documents say, what they mean, uh, and they, they, they sign something or they initial something or they don't. And you know that's why, I don't want to sound self-serving here, but that's why working with an experienced estate planning lawyer and law firm that has the systems the policies, the procedure, and the staffing in place uh, to make sure that these issues don't happen is super important, especially for someone who has uh, a decent estate. You know, if they have land, if they have uh, investment properties, if they have investments, um, working with an attorney is is kind of a, a necessary expenditure. To me, that seems like a minimum standard of service. Now, I do recommend for people who aren't going to spend um, the necessary funds, there's some people who they're just going to do it on their own, and there's nothing I'm ever going to say to change their mind. <clears throat> but, but if they're going to an attorney, uh, somebody recommend an attorney, either another professional, I always say you have to get them to take responsibility to get the assets transferred in the trust and double check that. And it's going to cost more because like you see, the firm has to have the procedures and the staff to do that. It's not free. It takes time and costs money. But you can't buy the safe and not put your valuables in the safe and think you're you're protected. That's And too many people, uh, I recommend all the time, trustandwill.com, which is a great, inexpensive um, option for people who can do the work on their own. The problem is most people can't do the work on their own, and they're not going to. And and that's why that doesn't work uh, for so many. And the, and the in Los Angeles, the probate court is full of people who got the documents, but like Ty's uh, family member, didn't sign them. It's it's a whole industry um, almost. Alada, another question uh, coming from you. Yes, please. I'm so sorry to ask you all these questions. Okay. But there, uh, when you mentioned revocable trust, so sometimes when people, elderly get sick and they do not have money to pay for the bills, and uh, they have to take uh, money out of the trust. Is there any way um, any any person can not touch the trust at all, even if they are sick or dying or need medical, um, you know, advice, money, and whatever? Is there any possibility that the the government or anybody would not touch their money? Is there any kind of trust available like that? So I think what she's asking is a whole is a whole uh, industry of protecting assets from unexpected medical costs. How how can a uh, a proper plan protect uh, the end of life uh, costs that might be associated with that? Yeah. So where I generally see this question arise the most is perhaps a senior adult who um, is in a situation where they may need long term care, uh, and the cost of that um, the the goal is that that cost is going to be paid for through Medicaid. Uh, and not out of their private assets. So yes, there are some planning strategies for that. Um, our firm really doesn't do that type of Medicaid uh, avoidance. Um, it's just not kind of the, the client base that we have. Uh, 
Um, however, uh, there are a lot of attorneys who practice kind of in the elder law area who may utilize some irrevocable trusts. Uh, generally, they're referred to as kind of a Medicaid asset protection trust. Uh, there are also some um, uh, VA benefit type of trust. And then there's certain other annuities and, and other products that, that may go hand in hand with that. So there are those strategies out there. That is a pretty uh, common thing. Uh, our firm, we, we, that's just kind of not the pathway that, that we go down. We work more with, um, again, those types of clients that have that one to $10 million threshold. We work with a lot of uh, professionals, entrepreneurs, um, just generally not the type of client that is going to be reliant upon Medicaid. Well, that's my client <laughs> in California. And I think what happens is uh, end-of-life care, the Medicaid can go back, I think, up to five years. And so as part of the probate process, uh, they'll require a statement verifying you know, who the medical care was. And the judge will often ask the attorney, do they know if they had Medicaid or not at the end? And basically, you're going to pay that money back out of the probate assets, uh, the term they use is clawback. And it's not common to see an expense come through for 80, 100, I saw one for $180,000 that, you know, and, and if after all the expenses and time you wait, you watch $180,000 go uh, uh, out of the estate on one hand. On the other hand, people say, well, you pay taxes for that and that's the rules and we're allowed to play by the legal rules. And so I'm not, I'm not making a judgment whether you should or shouldn't, but I will say that if it's your parents and you want to save the money, or you have a client, they should look into using the um, proper planning tools to avoid um, paying those kinds of costs. You're exactly right. And if I may, uh, we, we see that also on the probate side of things, where perhaps that individual did have to rely on, on Medicaid, and certainly the state will be happy to, to file a creditor claim in the probate court uh, to try to re recoup uh, that cost. Well, not is the state happy to file it, but the judge is also encouraging them to file it, begging them to file it, requiring you to verify that, that you've given them the chance to file it. Because if there's one thing about probate, the thing I always tell people is, you know, the state's going to get paid. Uh, the county's going to get paid. All the taxes are going to get paid. Then all the creditors are going to get paid. Then there'll be the filing fees and, the, and they'll get paid there. And then the attorneys are all going to get paid. And whatever crumbs are left get distributed to the to the heirs at the end, but you can assure the, the state's going to get their tax money one way or the other in a probing process. So, and I'm again, not judging that just, just know that's how it works. Chipster, what do you got? So, um, you know, now you'll see how my brain spins and works. Um, uh, you had mentioned, uh, the irre irre irrevocable trust as, um, a way, uh, around the Medicare, um, situation. As I understand it, there's like a five-year go-back policy. Um, does a irrevocable trust avert that, or is that still the case where you have to have had it in effect five years before you file for Medicare? Yeah, so let me answer your question by saying that, again, kind of that's kind of not our area of expertise, although previously we have collaborated with elder law attorneys uh, on these types of projects. Um, that is my understanding that basically if you place assets into an irrevocable trust, um, you've got to make sure you've done that uh, for a time period greater than five years when you apply for Medicaid. And, you know, Medicaid is one of those areas of the law that um, 
quite candidly, it, it's very confusing. Um, Medicaid rules are constantly changing. Um, you know, everyone, when we talk about Medicaid, there, there again is kind of several angles we want to look at. You know, one is how do we avoid what we call a Medicaid recovery? Again, that's the idea where someone passes away, the state's going to now say, you owe us $100,000. And those trusts can be a great way of doing that. In certain states, um, you can maybe try to exempt real property through various deeds. Um, there's uh, you know, various type of uh, commonly referred to as like ladybird deeds that perhaps right. are out there. Um, the other piece of Medicaid planning though, really, again, this is really where it gets complicated. Understanding does a person qualify for Medicaid? Uh, and that's going to be based on their assets. And, you know, if their uh, Social Security is over a certain amount or their retirement is over a certain amount, they may not. And that amount is going to be different depending upon the level of care, the level of need that they have. So Medicaid can be complex. Um, if someone thinks that that's you know part of their planning strategy then they certainly should speak to an elder law attorney uh start that process early make sure that again assets are aligned in that trust uh so that you don't have an you know situation where you think that you have a trust that's in place now you need medicaid and you find out oops that trust was never funded yeah medicaid by definition is means tested it's limited based on uh, income medicare is anybody's entitled who pays into the system to get benefits based on what they pay in to some degree. But the Medicaid, it, it's interesting um, because it's means tested, technically means you have to have you know, below certain thresholds of income and assets. And the only people who have the money to um, protect those assets are people who, you know, they have, they have a house that's worth a million dollars, but they have no cash, they have no income, they're going to need the Medicaid and qualify for it but it's going to come out of the house. And so a family member, this is where a family member I think has to help, you know, grandma or their aunt, old elderly aunt sometimes and say, well, let's plan ahead um, because if we don't, these assets are going to get eaten into if we plan ahead and maybe even the beneficiary might pay for the legal work ahead time to keep those assets in the family. So those are, generally speaking, at least when I see those, those are people who on their own, they're not going to spend money to establish a trust. They don't have three or $5,000 cash most of the time to, to pay for a estate a, a plan, but their kids might, or their, their uh, heirs might. And it's definitely worth to have those conversations with your family members to make sure they're taken care of. Okay. Do you have the Lady Bird deed there in North Carolina as well? Good question. Uh, yes, in theory we do. Um, however, I think most uh, elder law and Medicaid uh, practitioners are a little dubious of it. Um, you know, Medicaid, obviously it is, uh, it's a state defined benefit. Um, but here in North Carolina, we have 100 different counties. So you have 100 different, uh, you know, Department of Health and Human Services, uh, that you potentially are going to be dealing with when you're trying to qualify someone for Medicaid. So yes, we do have Lady Bird deeds. Uh, we have used those in some limited circumstances. Um, but I think there may be some better strategies than just relying on that. Mm -hmm. And just to summarize, Lady Bird deed in short words are you can you have the deed, but you can change your mind. How, how would you describe the Lady Bird deed process? 
So to answer, sort of answer this without uh, sounding like uh, third year law school class. So real property, uh, you know, the, the, the example that you hear about is that you have kind of a bundle of sticks. Uh, and, and one of those sticks is it allows you to assign it to other parties. And so the idea of a ladybird deed is basically you have retained certain ownership, but you have conveyed uh, the majority of ownership to a remainder interest holder. Somebody who's going to basically take it when you die. Uh, and because of that, um, there's the legal argument that you basically don't fully control or own the entire asset. Um, I think most elder law practitioners, again, depending upon the state that you're in, probably going to recommend maybe some different strategies. Um, but technically, the Lady Bird deed in North Carolina is still recognized. Um, and it's a strategy that, that still could be used. I think in general, I'm not an attorney, but I think basically that's not allowed in California. We have other procedures and we're too regulated here, to allow that. Here in the state of Florida, the the way it was explained to me is it's it's, it's good for, say, a, a, a mother wants to leave the house to her daughter. She she creates a ladybird deed. So her daughter is now on the deed, but the mother still has full control and she could take her daughter off it for any reason if she wanted to but it allows it to pass because it's a deed it allows it to pass directly to the daughter and avoid probate but you bring up a really good point that it may avoid probate but it doesn't necessarily if it never gets to probate and the mother is trying to go to you know uh, an assisted living place now that's going to be counted against her for as an asset which could hurt her in that way. Yeah, again, I think that's kind of where sitting down with kind of an elder law specialist is, is really going to be important. Thanks. Thanks, Chip. Thank you for the, the uh, Florida the Florida Minute. Uh, Florida and Georgia, you have a little competition there, a little rivalry, but uh, Chip's not an attorney. He's a real estate agent, part of our team uh, in Florida. We've had other Florida attorneys as well. So for those of you on the call, you know, again, last call here for questions. Feel free to raise your hand or put it in the chat box, or if you're watching a live stream, uh, put the questions there as well. Um, and I think the, you know, the thing I want to uh, emphasize always is, sometimes some people say, well, well how am I going to get, you know, I'm a real estate agent, uh, just tell me how I get business. And, and I think that it, it's a little more complicated than that. Number one, my thesis is, if you know the business better, you'll be more attractive to families and or attorneys to get business. So the best way to get it in my book is to be, be a better agent, be a better resource to your clients and the business will come to you. And that's why we do this, try to be educational. And while um, Jason's limited to North Carolina, the principles are, are the same you know, throughout. So let's just talk a little bit if we can, kind of get step out of the law part and maybe to the, to the businessman, Jason, who has a, a business. Um, you know, there are people here on the call, they're real estate investors, they're real estate uh, agents who would love to, and let's just talk about hypothetically, have a relationship with you or your staff, where when you have clients who need to sell houses, we all like the phone call, and I love it. Hey, Bill, we have this house. Can you list it? Well, yeah, but normally that's at the end of a relationship, and there's oftentimes work between that phone call, even for that client in there. Describe a little bit about the process. I know you have preferred vendors in your office. I think we've talked to one of them, uh, a real estate agent example. Talk about what what if you were advising a real estate agent who wanted to 
work with you, be of service to your firm, but also get business. How would they go about that? What would you recommend them to do? Well, I think from, from our business model standpoint, um, collaborating with real estate agents is actually one of the things that we, we greatly enjoy, um, whether it was on the estate planning side or whether it's on the probate side. You know, we're actually working with um, quite a few real estate uh, agents right now who have clients that are uh, real estate investors uh, and collaborating with us in terms of making sure that maybe that client has an LLC, they have an asset protection strategy. Um, certainly kind of what I kind of say on the back end, whether that was probate or trust administration, um, you know, for us having um, really great real estate agents that we can help uh, coordinate the sale of real property uh, is, is super important. I'll give you an example. We, we have a trust administration right now that we're working with and our client is the trustee. Uh, the trust is basically composed of, of nothing but real estate, uh, real estate in various counties in North Carolina. Now, what does that practically mean? Well, it practically means that this trust Someone's got to pay the taxes. Someone's got to pay uh, the insurance. Someone's got to pay for the upkeep. And when there are no liquid assets to this trust, guess who's doing it? Usually it's one of the beneficiaries who's stepping up for a period of time and trying to pay these things. And so for us, when we're working with that trustee, if we can get them coordinated with a real estate agent and we can begin to liquidate these properties um, quickly, that's a win-win for everybody. So, you know, we certainly enjoy collaborating with real estate uh, professionals. I think in general, the longer a case is open, the worse it gets. It's true in real estate, right? There's nothing good that happens from the day a list of property until the day the proceeds are wired. There's nothing good other than the wiring of the funds. And it just seems to me in, in litigation, when the, spouse, when the uh, siblings are getting along day one, I always feel like there's a there's like a time bomb or there's a grenade ready to go off at some point. And if I don't get this thing done quickly, I feel like it's going to blow up on me or my client. You know, and I would say for the this example, the the trustee or the estate, they want to sell that property quickly. I mean, I think everyone understands that real estate values right now are you know at, at a high point. Um, whether that will continue or whether those will decline. Um, I guess we could have a, a whole separate conversation about that. Um, but basically, they want to get why the getting is good. Yeah. Uh, and if they can go ahead and sell these properties for a premium uh, and go ahead and liquidate these assets, um, I, I quite bluntly, I've never, uh, well, let me back that up. In the past two to three years, I have never had a trust or an estate that basically says, let's just hold on to the property. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then with the cat, usually it's vacant. It's just it's just an expense and a risk. There's nothing positive to go on. Well, look, we're I I kind of lost track of time. I really enjoyed the conversation with you, Jason. Again, I've I've you know, talked to you in the past, and Ashley and your team are fantastic. Um, if someone want to get a hold of you and talk about these matters, what's the best way for them to explore a uh, estate plan in North Carolina? What should they, or if they have a litigation-related yeah. probate, where should they go to? Yeah, check us out at wallslawnc.com. Uh, I think you're you're seeing our, our website now. Um, or you certainly can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. Um, we're also connected to uh, to your group, Bill. It's eight um, o'clock. Oh, my clock is telling me it's eight o'clock. Uh, so uh, yeah, reach out to us. Um, and, and again, we, we very much value the opportunity to work with real estate agents 
whether it's from a planning standpoint or whether it's from perhaps the, the estate settlement side of things. Fantastic. Well, look, again, I appreciate so much your time. I appreciate not having to pay your hourly rate. You gave me a big discount on that. And uh, Ashley and your team have been fantastic. So on behalf of everybody on the call today, Jason, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to continuing the conversation to go forward. Uh, same here. Thank you so much. And I'll just type in my email address in the chat uh, in case anybody wants to follow up with me directly. Be glad to do that. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. So we do this every Thursday at four o'clock uh, Pacific time, seven o'clock Eastern time, probateweekly.com. We also, if you sign up, we, we live stream it on YouTube and Facebook. You can see the recordings there. If you happen to be in Los Angeles and are available now, um, we are hosting a real estate networking event at the All Seasons Brewery, free. If you register on the Eventbrite, um, which I'll put in the chat box, um, I am glad to give you a buy you a free drink. I'll get a drink ticket and you can get one on me if you show up and happen to have a uh, drink ticket. So let me see if I get that in the chat box somehow. Where am I? I've got to stop the share. And there it is in the chat box. If you go into Eventbrite and it's brew, real estate that we do, we network, socialize, and free beer. And how could you go wrong with that? So again, on behalf of everybody, Jason, thank you and your team. Appreciate you guys. We'll see you next week. As always, make today your best day ever. Thank you so much, everybody. Hey, it's Bill Gross. I hope you like this video. If you want to join us live every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern, register at probateweekly.com, www.probateweekly.com. And if you like this content, hit the like button and subscribe and hit notifications, and you get notified as soon as we upload every time. Thanks.